0: So this was supposed to be the night that Joseph gave his talk, (coughs) and uh, he called this morning and said, what will you do, what will you do? And I said, I will do it, I will do it. (laughs) And I said, I'll try to channel you as best I can, but I'm afraid I'm a little short. So he suggested high heels. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't bring any with me. I did (laughs) (laughs) so that's the talk thank you (laughs) <laughs> hmm. I'm not quite sure what to say after that. <laughs> hmm. So I'm hoping that I can restrain myself a bit tonight and um, have a little bit of time for questions and answers afterwards, because that's what, <clears throat> that's what Joseph had been planning. Uh, but since I've uh, been writing the talk today, I'm not quite, I didn't have a time to really um, time it. So I'm not quite sure how long or how short it will be. So let's just see how we get on. Okay. So we've been talking about uh, the seven factors of enlightenment. And um, there are two ways that we can look at enlightenment. (coughs) We can think about it as starting out as poor, uh, terrible people who have to climb this, ladder to, um, with as much effort as we can, we can feel unworthy and try to change and purify and make ourselves better. My teacher Jack Cornfield says it's like uh, we have the divine mixed up with dieting in our minds, right? We think that that's somehow if we do this and do that and do the other thing that we'll somehow become better people you know what alan called alan watts calls uh religion as a grim duty right trying to fix ourselves so there's another way that we can look at it and it's really understanding the fundamental wakefulness and compassion of who we truly are our true nature And it's important um, to, when we reflect on awakening or enlightenment, however you like to think of it or reflect on it, to um, not think of it as a state that somehow we're going to move from here to there. And where we are now is not good enough. And when we get there into that new state, We will be good enough. We'll be perfect. We'll be somehow forever changed. What I notice of the people that um, appear to have some degree of awakening or enlightenment is the ones that we know, such as the Dalai Lama, is that they are supremely human, that that is In some ways, their most basic feature, their most endearing feature is how incredibly human they are. And so to really understand that our humanity is fundamentally wakeful and fundamentally compassionate. So in a way to see that the mind and heart are really luminous, that... They are just momentarily caught in confusion and fears and desires, and we lose touch from time to time with our basic fundamental openness. So if we can think about this together, not thinking I am this or I am that, but actually to look just at the stages that we move through as we move through our spiritual journey, and to look at awakening in a way as uh, in, the, in the framework of the Four Noble Truths, the basic teaching of the Buddha, that there is dukkha, there is the origin of dukkha, there's the cessation of dukkha, and uh, there's a path to the cessation of dukkha. And as Ajahn Shah, my teacher's teacher, says, if we let go a little, we have a little peace. If we let go a lot, we have a lot of peace. And if we let go completely, we will have complete peace. So to kindly and tenderly and uh, sweetly, in a way, look at these factors of enlightenment or these factors of awakening, as qualities or radiations of the awakened mind. So in this way, we're not really speaking so much of uh, development as we are speaking about remembering. What we do, our fundamental spiritual practice, has many, many levels of meaning. One meaning is bringing the members, remembering, remembering, bringing the members back into one whole. Also to remember something very deep in ourselves. These qualities speak to our inherent nobility to our wakefulness and to this true nature about which i 've s- just spoken, and just to remind you, they include mindfulness and investigation about which we spoke the first night, and uh, energy or um, effort and joy or rapture, as Bhante spoke about last night and mindfulness is the kind of mediating quality and uh, investigation effort and uh, joy or rapture are arousing qualities. So tonight I'll be speaking about two of the calming qualities, the qualities of uh, calm and concentration and tomorrow night uh, Larry will be speaking about um, equanimity. That is, of course, our plan, right? But as we can see with Joseph, the future is always unknown. So we remember these qualities. We bring these qualities back into our... uh, Wholeness our new our nobility, not so much in a transcendent way away from the world, but actually in the midst of it, and in a way, these qualities are not so much um, linear qualities where we start with. Uh, mindfulness and we kind of take it step by step and wind up at equanimity. But as I said the first night as you as you practice here and as you go through the days you can actually look to see what qualities are um, present in the mind and what qualities are absent. And Vante spoke last night very beautifully about uh, developing those qualities that are absent. So it's not, uh, it's not really looking again at where we are now and thinking we're going to get somewhere by going through some steps, but actually just having the faith and the uh, awareness to do our practice faithfully. And as we do our practice faithfully, um, we begin to see these qualities of mind Emerge. We begin to see a mind that is awakened, a mind that begins to let go of uh, the dukkha, the suffering. So I'd like to talk uh, a little bit tonight about calm and concentration. As I said, uh, these are the stabilizing qualities that balance the uplifting qualities about which we've already spoken.
1: And these uh,
0: qualities of aliveness, of energy and investigation and interest and rapture become balanced when we introduce these qualities of calm, concentration, and equanimity. So In a way, I've always experienced uh, these teachings as a tremendous affirmation that we can actually be fully, fully, fully alive in this world, that we are part of a web, part of the web of interconnectedness, that whatever lives and that includes us, has life force, the quality of which is energy, a sense of full spiritedness. And as you know, without that energy, without that spiritedness, we can't lift our arms, we can't move our eyes, we can't open our mouths or open open and shut our eyes. And if you've ever been with someone who's dying, you know that at one moment, even though it might be quite weak, there is the life force in us, and then the next moment, there is none. But while we're living, we share the energy that makes everything, from a blade of grass to an elephant, grow and live, and then inevitably wear out and die. And this energy, this life force, creates the whole world. And it's very curious that because we as human beings have consciousness, we are also subject to a little twist on that theme, which is that we somehow resist these life energies. We seem to... uh, want the life's energies to be a certain way and When they're not We tend to resist them So sitting still Holding on to one seat Means not being pulled away from these energies from being fully right here fully experiencing and acknowledging our life energy. Martin Luther King eloquently pointed out that human progress is neither automatic nor inevitable. He said, even a superficial look at history reveals that no social advance rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. Every step, he was talking about justice, he said, every step toward the goal of justice requires the tireless exertions and passionate concern of dedicated individuals. And this tireless exertion and passionate concern is the life energy that we need for all of our endeavors. So we can sit still in the midst of all of our mind storms. And I'm sure you've had one or two today. Yes? Or has it been just pure bliss? (laughs) So these mind storms, whether they're hurricanes or earthquakes or tidal waves, we can actually learn to sit still without resistance. And this provides the opportunity to experience once again the living quality of our life energy, earth, air fire, and water. And this quality of calm can arise when we have the tireless exertion and the passion to actually sit in the midst of these life storms, these life energies. When Rosa Parks died, all of the tributes to her on PBS showed that famous picture of her uh, sitting on the bus, just looking out the window in a very serene way. It's like that. She was in the midst of a storm. And looking at the picture, you can even know that it was dangerous. There is something about the quality of the picture that you know the danger that she was in, and this act of resistance was a physical act of resistance, she sat there on this bus with her physical presence, but actually what the picture depicts so beautifully was the way in which the mind could be completely serene even in the midst of that storm. And what she said about it later in her life, when she was asked why she refused to vacate her seat, she said, people always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired. But that isn't true. I was not tired physically. I was not old, although some people have an image of my being old then. I was 42. No, the only tired I was was tired of giving in. I wanted to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and a citizen of Montgomery, Alabama. So there she was sitting just because she was tired of injustice. Just sitting there And in that picture of great serenity, I could actually see the unresisted life energy. And of course, we know it was there because it helped to spark and galvanize an entire justice movement. That is the power of calm and serenity. That is the power of not resisting our energy. So what makes us do it? What makes us resist our energy? Why do we resist the life force that flows through us that brings all of the ups and downs, the vicissitudes, the beauty, everything that life has to offer? The teaching of uh, these seven factors of enlightenment, as well as the Four Noble Truths, which is the uh, basic teaching of the Buddha, this teaching says that if you are alive and that if you have a body, a heart, and a mind, if you can love, if you can be compassionate, if you can know directly the life energy that makes everything move and change and grow and die without resentment or resistance, then the suffering of being a human being will cease. So that's a pretty big promise. And I wonder if we believe it I wonder if we actually know that this quality of calm, which comes from stopping the war, stopping the war that we have with what the life energy produces, if we really know that this aspect of of mind that we call calm or tranquility, or um, coolness, is really that powerful. We change like the weather. We ebb and we flow like the tides. We wax and we wane like the moon. Sometimes we're completely full, and sometimes we're just a sliver. We do that, and we, there's no reason to resist it other than the mind's idea that it's better to be full than to be a sliver or that it's better to wax than to wane, or that it's better to ebb than to flow. And if you really reflect on that, you'll see that actually without a flow, there is no ebb, and without a wane, there's no wax. And without the sliver, there's no fullness. So there's no reason to resist it. And if we resist it, the reality and vitality of life becomes misery, a kind of hell. And if we don't, inevitably, this fifth factor of calm arises. I saw an interview with uh, James Blake, the tennis player who played so fabulously a few years ago in the US Open semifinals. that against Andre Agustin finally he lost in five sets in a tiebreaker. And he's quite remarkable because a year before that um, he had broken his neck and he'd had a case of shingles that left him paralyzed on one side of his face where he couldn't close his eyes or smile. He's a beautiful um, African-American young man from Connecticut actually. Of course the irony was that at that time he was named by People Magazine as one of the 10 sexiest men in the world Right? couldn't close his eye, couldn't, close, couldn't smile but he was very sexy anyway the interviewer asked if he ever thought in the midst of all of the, and I think the year before that not only had all of that happened to him but his dad became very, very ill. His dad with whom he was very close and died in that year also. And the interviewer asked if um, he ever thought, you know, why me? Why should all of this befall me? And he said, no, he hadn't. And they said, how, you know, how come, what? And he said, because he'd seen an interview with Arthur Ashe after Arthur Ashe got AIDS. And he said, Arthur Ashe said he'd never asked, why me? Because he'd never asked, why me? When he was holding up the Wimbledon and US Open trophies. So he didn't think it appropriate to ask why me when he contracted AIDS. So I found that a very, very deep story and very deep understanding Of the truth that pain is unavoidable, change is unavoidable, and that we don't have to resist it, but that we can accept what comes, just as it is, not resisting the winds that come our way. And when we don't resist, as I said, what happens is this quality of calm begins to appear in our minds, in our mental stream. So, this calm arises when we come to rest in the midst of life. And mentally, the most direct way of coming to rest <clears throat> is to learn to let go of our likes and dislikes. This means that we stop living so much in our plans and in our desires and in our regrets. Life becomes so complicated when we fill it up with preferences and plans and we actually miss the actual experience of things as they are. We can go for a hike uh, on a beautiful trail in these woods and spend three quarters of our time thinking about what we're going to do when we get, we get back, right? So we're there in the beauty of the woods with the birds and the chipmunks and the squirrels and the deer and actually what we're, where we're occupied is the cup of tea that we'll have when we get back and we're so attached to these judgments and plans and ideas as though we really know what's going to happen joseph didn't have has never had to leave a retreat in 35 years and so he expected that he would always be well enough for every retreat that he planned so we might be able to make a fair a fair guess of what it is that's gonna happen based on the past. But do we really understand that there's just no way ever of predicting what will happen? We don't know. We don't know who's going to be born today and we don't know who's going to die. We don't know whether we'll get hit by a bus or we'll win the lottery. So a great sense of tranquility can come when we let go of the futile urge to control everything and to instead relate to each moment with openness and awareness. And that's what we've been doing these last three days, training the mind to relate with openness and awareness. It's like the cool shade of a tree to a person previously affected by the sun's heat. And it's not that it's wrong to have plans or ideas. They're fine. But it's the attachment to these ideas, to the excessive reliance on them, that causes the trouble. This is from Wendell Barry. He says, I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear, fear in it leaves it. And the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. So, this inner calmness, this ability to be with things just as they are, without resistance, without this attachment to outcomes is a way of being that can transform our lives. Taking one thing at a time as our focus, letting the imperfections of life be, this fosters a sense of the present, a contentment with this moment. And at first, meditation may develop in some ways, but still be mixed with this striving this judgment, I want to be calm. I don't want this sleepiness. I want to be this way. I don't want to be that way. And I, I don't want to have this lust. I don't want to have this sleepiness. I don't want to be restless. I want to be calm. I don't want my mind to think, why is it having this thinking? I don't want to, you know, all of that. And so the very thing that we are trying to escape The very prison we're trying to escape is the very prison that we're building. So we can learn the art of letting go, learn the art of just being with things as they are and finding a calm center center in the midst of our changing sense, the midst of our changing life. And as we sit, if we are able to sit with some continuity, if we are able to sit and actually feel the sense of seclusion that is so supportive for us, that is actual that this entire um, institute institution is built around the um, idea of supporting us in our seclusion, in our stillness, and in our silence. As we actually take advantage of that, extraordinary levels of silence and peace can open up for us. We can feel as if the whole world has suddenly stopped moving. Our body can become light and transparent like a clear spring sky. The senses and the heart can open in a sweet and delicate way and a powerful contentment can arise. And this contentment, this happiness and this contentment comes from a heart at rest and not from changing outer circumstances. And all of this can be discovered as a power and a fruit of our practice. And to know that this calmness is not weakness. It has a tremendous strength. Because in order to um, cultivate it, in order to develop it, we need the strength about which Martin Luther King spoke, this passion, this consistent, effort. So we cultivate calm, we cultivate this tranquility, this coolness, when we understand these energies of our lives, when we understand that we live in a world of opposites, of gain and loss and praise and blame pleasure, and pain. When we can see the rising and falling of the conditioned world, when we can see uh, that things come and things go, free from anxiety and free from restlessness. And that is the uh, way of calm. And as the Buddha said, however we... Enjoy wherever we put the mind, that's where it will incline. So if we incline the mind towards calm, it begins to open to that peace and that tranquility. And we do that in all our postures. We do that in sitting, in walking, in standing, in lying down, in eating, in defecating, in urinating, in everything that we do. So that this calm that we cultivate is not even the exclusive purview of our retreat time, although it's a time to really establish some momentum in this calmness. That it's actually portable, that we can actually cultivate this calm, not only when we're here on retreat, but we can take the momentum of what we have cultivated here and actually bring it into life. And as Thich Nhat Hanh said about the, um, when, when people were fleeing from Vietnam on the boats, he said that when, if, if a storm came that many people would panic and that the boats that survived were those where there was just one person who was calm. And that's you. That's who you can be. You can be the one person that has cultivated enough calmness in your life so that when the storms, the earthquakes, the tsunamis, the tidal waves arrive, the hurricanes, your heart is calm. And it's not wishing for the weather to be different, but it knows how to hold its ground in the midst of the storms of life so when we cultivate this calmness the mind is able to concentrate when we are no longer wishing for things to be other than they are but we're actually receiving our experience with mindfulness. We, the factor of samadhi arises. And this factor of samadhi, the sixth factor of awakening or enlightenment, is usually translated as concentration. But that's a little bit misleading because We think that that means a narrow focus and that whatever falls outside of this focus of attention is unwelcome. But the flavor of samadhi um, doesn't have that exclusive quality to it. It means actually a mind that is unified. So when we give you the instruction to take the breath up as an object and actually um, keep returning to it. We are actually helping, uh, suggesting a way that you can um, bring together the heart and mind. Because when the mind becomes unified in this way, it becomes strong. And you'll notice that we've actually lost the strength of our natural mind to the the distractions to which we give our attention, all the various thoughts and emotions that we grasp and run after. And in letting go of those distractions, which is really the heart of the mindfulness practice, coming back to what is real in the here and now, the mind starts to collect itself again. And so its native power, its natural power, is returned to it. So you may notice that there's a, there's a theme here, that actually these qualities, these stabilizing qualities of mind, actually give the mind a tremendous amount of strength and power. So many techniques that are used um, are used to develop samadhi with an exclusive focus of attention. So uh, exclusive attention on the breath, for instance, may be a way to deepen samadhi, or a repetition of the metaphrases, or actually keeping the object of the moving foot, or the moving body, uh, moment to moment to moment to moment. All of these ways of Bringing the attention back, bringing the mind back to the object is a way of deepening Samadhi. so we can actually choose a focus to bring uh, the mind together around a particular object, but for Samadhi to deepen it 's not necessarily uh, it 's not necessary that we do that when you practice mindfulness the practice that we've been doing for these last three days where we're actually uh, starting with the breath but taking up whatever objects present themselves, uh, actually beginning to look at... Uh, yesterday, Larry took us through uh, looking at the body and, and the sensations that are arising in the body and all of the ways in which we actually feel our embodiment. And this morning, we worked with thoughts and emotions. So we're taking up changing objects, moment to moment, day by day. And you can actually deepen samadhi with this um, attention to changing objects without having to have an exclusive focus. And it's helpful to get to know how the state feels. At first, when we look within, we notice how out of control the mind is. It's filled with thoughts, with plans, with reactions, with likes, with dislikes. It's untrained and it's turbulent. And there's this constant barrage of sense impressions, then reactions. And you may have even thought, my goodness, when I meditate, my my mind gets busier than it actually was before I started meditating, right? My mind was relatively calm before, you know, they started giving me this meditation stuff, right? And now look at the mind, it just won't stop, right? But actually what's happening is that the mind was actually always doing this, and you were just simply unaware. So this constant barrage of sense impressions and reactions, this constant stream of mental and sometimes even physical events seem very solid. But as the mind becomes more unified and more concentrated and focused and still, we begin to penetrate through these layers of thought and see how they simply arise and pass away from moment to moment. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that nothing stays solid, nothing stays the same, but that actually things are arising and passing, arising and passing? And we begin to see that this is all just actually um, process in constant change. So again, when the mind is unified, it becomes strong. And then from that strength comes a stability, an unshakability, a steadiness, a firmness, and undistractedness. And as you grow in your practice, as the practice broadens and deepens, your ability to stay with this chosen object for a period of time becomes stronger and stronger. And that's what you're actually doing. That is what we're engaged in. We're engaged in a training of the mind. And the fact that you can stay with the object for a longer period of time, it may be the measurement of samadhi, but it's not your felt experience. What is the felt experience is a very natural wholeness of mind. And the reason that it's so natural is that peace is in the nature of our mind. Nyoshul Kenpo Rinpoche says, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helplessly by karma and neurotic thoughts, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. So in this resting, we learn the art of settling. We learn the art of releasing, of passing through the various layers of the mind without adding to the resistance to things as they are. Or as Suzuki Roshi says, things as it is. And in dropping our resistance, we may discover this pain or tension in the body. We may discover states of anger, loneliness, grief, longing, or some unfinished business that our busy mind covered over and protected us from feeling. But to release the resistance, it takes practice. It takes consistency and discovery of the correct spirit and balance in the meditation. And that's why we ask you, to really protect your silence. That's why we ask you to really protect your um, seclusion, because it's in the continuity of your mindfulness, in your ability to actually stay mindful from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to sleep, even for some of us to stay mindful even during the time that we're sleeping. So that this mindfulness becomes our way of being, rather than some artificial way of uh, making the mind work. So a natural happiness and feeling of well-being arises when we have passed through the resistance and touched the first steadiness and clarity that concentration brings, or this unity of mind. And when we can simply rest, the mind returns to its natural place and to its samadhi. And we realize that, as Nyushu Kenpo says, this exhausted mind, this mind that is uh, so out of control, and has been for so long, can actually be worked with. It can actually become aware and steady and directed through this training. And we've been talking a little bit about the hindrances. From time to time, they've come up in your practice. Sloth and torpor, lust or desire and aversion or hatred and um, restlessness and doubt, these five forces in the mind that take us away from our practice. When the mind is unified, these hindrances are suspended. And this is one of the main virtues of concentration or samadhi in our practice. And without, with the hindrances suspended, the mind becomes quite stable. And this is actually possible. The Buddha said, if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. It is actually possible in your practice, and your practice, and your practice. It's actually possible in each of our practices. And we have a sense of well-being, and we are able to see clearly. Peace and stillness are manifestations of concentration and it permits wisdom to arise and the mind becomes collected. So we use this um, samadhi in our practice as a solid foundation for understanding. And when the mind is concentrated, it has the ability to penetrate deeply into the mind-body process. So our aim is to keep all of these uh, factors of of enlightenment or awakening developing through our life practice. They are not just the purview of meditation, but actually um, factors of mind that can be developed in our lives. We return to the present, direct connection with our breath, with the phrases, with our experience, with non-distractedness, and the mind settles within itself. Ajahn Sumedho, who's one of your teachers, is the abbot of a monastery in England called Amrawati. And he's part of my uh, Thai forest lineage, Thai forest monastery lineage. And so they're, the way they conduct their Uh, monastery is actually a very integrated way of life. And someone came to the monastery and said to him, how many hours do the monks and nuns meditate? I don't see them doing a lot of meditation. And without skipping a beat, Ajahn Sumedho said, 24. (laughs) So these qualities of mind are awakening factors on the path. the buddha in the dhammapada said heedfulness is the path to deathlessness heedlessness is the way to death there is a direct connection between the practice that we do and liberation and the buddha first made that connection in the sutta that is the main discourse that set the guidelines for our meditation he said friend may This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, and for the realization of Nibbana. I wish you the realization of Nibbana. Let's sit for a moment. you sit, a poem for you from Octavio Paz, between going and staying the day wavers in love with its own transparency, a circular afternoon is now a bay where the world in stillness rocks, all is visible and all elusive, all is near and can't be touched, paper, book, pencil, glass rest in the shade of their names. Time throbbing in my temples repeats the same unchanging syllable of blood. The light turns the indifferent wall into a ghostly theater of reflections. I find myself in the middle of an eye, watching myself in its blank stare. The moment scatters. Motionless, I stay and go. I am a pause. Seems there's no time for questions. So it's time for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.